0: Hello, and welcome to Eve's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm José. And today we've been to the Mac to not only see The Old Dark House, by, uh, directed by James Whale in 1932, but to hear José introduce it. Yes,
1: I've been doing a couple of those. I did the Frankenstein one as well you know and the brief was to not only introduce the film but to kind of try to relate it to queer cultures mm. which i found a bit difficult to do at the frankenstein screening because i hadn't realized it was going to be so full of children so actually <laughs> i had to change quite a lot of what i was going to say right. yeah just to take into account that there were children listening but uh you know today there was like nobody there under 50 i'd say actually mm. <laughs> it was like or well, you. But, yeah, I mean. <laughs> you were the youngest uh, person there, which is a pity, I thought, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What did you think of this? Well I,
0: well, I think there's clearly less interest because people have heard of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is a really, it's iconic, to mm. use the word of the day, but like it really fits. And you pointed out in your introduction that what James Whale did in developing the look of Frankenstein has stayed with us to the modern day. Yes. And not only you pointed out the Incredible Hulk and things like that, but just that image, yeah. that image stays with us. Sure. And it's the image of Frankenstein, now. Yeah, that, that um, was
1: developed for that film. Um, so
0: that's going to be, you know, I think, a, a big reason why... Certainly why kids were showing up for Frankenstein, um, but not here. Mm. Um, this is 72 minutes long, and at points I felt like I was really getting my money's worth because it felt long at times. Really? <laughs> yeah, it did to me. It's oh. interesting. I, I think it's very... It's interesting when the film starts. So it's it's these guys are driving through... Um, you know, mud and rain and flooding. Um, trying to get to Shrewsbury, and they can't stick it out. They find a house and they beg the owners of this house for help. The owner is a very, very old man and his sister, and they're sort of, sort of beaten up. He always looks like Frankenstein in that he feels like he's been stitched together. His mm-hmm. face. Um, their um, their butler, played by Boris Karloff, and a couple of other people arrive, and this whole thing starts. at this house is quite creepy. They're trying to stick out the night and. Things start, the secrets that the house holds, I guess, um, start to um, mm. be revealed. Um, and early on, when this is all starting up, and it's just the relationships between the characters, and yeah, you know, kind of the the dinner scene in particular, I thought this is this is nice and interesting and fun. Mm. Um, and then I thought it slowed down, particularly when you get to the um, the patriarch of the house uh. and the long explanation about the history, because there's just a lot of. This is just a monologue explaining why you know, why I should be interested in this house. But after that, it goes so quickly mm. Um, you know, things really start to kick off. to the point where I felt like it 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 actually needed a bit more sort of you know, this thing about this character Saul, who spoiler, for a nineteen thirty two film, the people who um run this house it's, that's their brother and he's very dangerous and they keep him locked up in a room upstairs. Mm. Um and this is what, something that the Um, patriarch tells two of the characters but as soon as we know this other characters start talking about Saul as though we already sort of have heard about him it's it's kind of it's it feels very very fast all of a sudden
1: well Saul is the secret that the house has been hiding yeah Uh, um and actually is he the secret or is he the one that reveals the secret because what we know is that two ...of his brothers got killed, yeah? Mm-hmm. Or a brother and a sister got killed, mm-hmm. right? And the question is, you know, was it Saul who killed them, Or is Saul, you know, being kind of kept in his room... ...because he knows who did it?
0: Yeah, because he, he says, he claims... ...that um, his brother and sister killed their sister. Yes. Is that, to, to you, something that um, is... ...like an interesting sort of hanging thread to, to well, pick up Well, yeah.
1: it so adds tension, like, you yeah. know... Because uh, also there's the line where Horace Femme (laughs) says uh, that he's kind of stuck in the house because, you know, the police are after him, right? Yes. So, you know, why would the... Yeah, so there's a sense that he, at least, in his mind, he's a criminal, right? Mm. And I don't think it's resolved in the film, but I just think that the not being sure of is an interesting dimension to the film.
0: Yes, I mean, it is true that you don't actually... At least from my perspective, I didn't feel like I had a handle on whether Saul was a bad guy or a good guy. We first hear about him when we eventually do hear about him. Mm. We're supposed to be thinking of him as a bad guy. He's tried to burn down the house once before, Mm. and that's why they're keeping him locked up. And that's why they have this big, burly butler who's also dangerous, but he's the only one who can handle this guy. Um, But of course, once he comes out, he seems quite meek. And he explains, they killed our sister. And I think the implication, I don't think he says it as such, but the implication is I've tried to burn the house down because of that. like mm. the Revenge or then deserve it, whatever it might be. Um, but then, of course, he starts threatening um, Pendle, the character, who he's kind of interacting with. And so you, you are left with this unresolved idea of actually who he is and what the relationships are or, or who who is good and who is bad. Because yeah, once he comes out, you, you start to think, oh, right, the guys who've been... Giving these people refuge all night—they're really the bad guys. Mm. But you, it also seems that they genuinely are under threat from this guy. It's very, it's kind of difficult to tell, right?
1: Yeah, I like that because you know, if one of the lenses through which I look at the film is really as a kind of a queer work, yeah, mm. it—that is one of the ways in which it is. Yeah, the notion of good and evil, villain upstairs, downstairs visitors householders those things are kind of fluid and strained and yeah, you know, they kind of move you know, so it suggests the, the
0: fluidity of identity in a sense to you
1: yes but also of you know what is evil yeah, yeah. and um it, it kind of complicates all of those things right because you see the people in the house they might be evil you know, mm. but they also might be the victims of that evil. And, you know, maybe mm. they've been twisted because they've had to live in those conditions and with that knowledge and, yeah. you know, and in that solitude. Right. So I think it all kind of lends itself very easily to queer readings on all kinds of levels. But I also think that the film is not just like a queer film. Yeah, that kind of, you know, it is also about the post-war period, about disillusioned servicemen, mm. about sexual relations, about class. Yeah, the whole Charles Lawton character. He's got a chip in the shoulder, you know, and he's out for class revenge because of what he perceives that upper-class people did to his wife, right? He thinks they killed his wife through mocking her. Um, So, you know, I think the film is very rich that way, actually, as well as being just kind of, you know, fun to watch. And I think the one thing I I really want to underline is, you know, I saw the film yesterday on my TV, which is quite large, Right. And, and really, it was a completely different experience watching it today on the big screen. It mm. just is. And I, I just want to underline that because, you know, kind of people keep making all kinds of... Oh, my screen is so large, or I have a projector, whatever. But, you know, it is just a completely different experience because of the size of the image, first of all. The quality of the projection, Yeah, the, the kind of texture that you had today, yeah, mm. the lighting was so visible and evident and mm. atmospheric. And also the audience, like, I think the combination of all of those things, to me, it kind of, it became a different experience. Yeah, it brings the film to life in a, yeah. in a different way. Like, absolutely, yeah. you know, uh, so, so I, I want to underline that, because also, you see things, you notice things, it's all more beautiful, it all affects your body in a different way, mm. I, I, I don't know quite yeah, how to describe it. We're going to go see The New Knives Out shortly, mm. and...
0: Um, that's you know been given to us for a week in the cinema, but that's you know it's going to be a Netflix film from now on. It's a Netflix film, mm. and it, it brings home to me the, the the point that I don't like that we are now being bequeathed a week of of, of you know cinema exhibition of these films mm. now from the kind Netflix gods and Amazon Prime gods. That's what we're getting these days. Yes,
1: and I mean I must say all of those are not very good, Kenneth Branagh. Christie adaptations, Murder on the Orient <laughs> Express and Death on the Nile, which I know you like, but I don't like them. But even so... Wait, wait, wait. wait. I hate the second one as much as you did. All right. Well, you liked the first one a lot more than I did. Yeah. Uh, it was still, like, you know, I went to the cinema and I saw it and I had fun. I couldn't bear to, you know, they're, they're now all available online mm. for free. You could watch them on your TV and you just could not be bothered. Like, yeah, it's kind of, you watch five minutes and you go... <laughs> right and I'm sure a lot of that is the conditions of viewing and not just Mm. the thing itself so not for free
0: incidentally you have to pay for Netflix still you hadn't forgotten that Uh,
1: so anyway (laughs) Um,
0: going back to um, the uh, old dark house one of the things that you brought up in your introduction was that it got a bit of a chilly reception when it first came out and it wasn't as big a hit as his other films had been I mean it was he'd done Frankenstein by then
1: yeah it it was initially a hit right Right, though, um, you know, the reviews was were not as enthusiastic and it wasn't, you know, because Frankenstein was a sociological phenomenon, mm-hmm. it was one of the biggest hits of the year. But, you know, the old Dark House did well. No. What I found interesting upon doing some, you know, really minor research at the BFI a few weeks ago was that upon its re-release, just a few years after, like in 1945, mm-hmm. people were saying, what is this piece of junk? It should have been left in its vaults, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And then by 1966, you know, there was a camp appreciation of it. It had, you know, there was a different audience and a different way of looking at that film that kind of rescued it in a way. Mm. And then by 2006, it was an established cult hit with already a history of cult audiences' appreciation for it. So I think that in itself is very interesting. And does
0: it seem to be particularly a queer audience that has kind of discovered it? Yes, Um, As opposed to a more general sort of horror audience? Well, I think
1: both. Right. Yeah. Uh, But one thing adds to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's part of the film's weirdness and attraction. Yeah. That kind of, it has those elements that before might have been unnameable. Yeah. Yeah. More like a feeling you have. But actually now they could be given a a name. I mean, um, I'm sure even straight audiences, when Ernest Thesiger, you know mm. comes down the staircase and says hello i'm horace fam <laughs> right like yeah you know that's <laughs> yeah. bound to get like a response right and his campiness with the role yeah like the way he plays it um mm. i'm thinking of doing a video essay with robert de niro's taxi driver am i talking to you am i talking to you and then Ernest Hesseger, have a potato. Have a potato. Have a... Yeah, like, <laughs> all the different ways he does have a potato. Have a
0: potato is nice. I like how, we, how have a potato becomes, he says it a couple of times and it becomes a, a line that you recognise. Um, and then he uses it as a way of shutting Charles Lawton up. Mm. It's a really nice way of it's the same line but it's been given a different the Reading. context is, yeah. is a different meaning, yeah. I really enjoyed that. There were things about the film I, I thought were kind of I guess sort of simple. I mean, maybe this is one of the things where we talk about the invention of what cinema horror was. Was yeah, kind of, you know, some of it or some some of the star some of the gothic stuff was happening in James Wales' films. Yeah. And this is one of them. It's not out and out horror in the way that other Universal films were, it's not a monster movie. No. Um but it's certainly building on the the gothic house, the 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 haunted haunted house, house, right?
1: Um, And the the secret that's being kept upstairs. Mm. And And the um, two worlds, yeah, the external world impinging, and the people who impinge being transformed by... Yeah. Yeah. So this is
0: one of those things where I go, does some of that seem just a little dull or simplistic to me because it has now been established? I don't know. I, I, I think I felt some of it... Some of it felt like a... Like a kind of eaten mess of kind of plot and ideas and tropes that were kind of being stuffed into a film that wasn't quite coherent.
1: Well, I think there's a bit of that, but I think it, it's more cohesive than hmm. I think it's more cohesive than you make it out to be. You know, so which elements didn't?
0: Well, well, um, it's when I refer to the speed with which things start moving in the final, sort mm. of final movement of the film. That's kind of what I'm talking about. So. Um, you know the the Saul character is, is at first revealed. You know it's been quite gradual up until that point. We've had uh, Ernest Essinger very interestingly being terrified of his own house. Yeah, you know, which is great, and he and it really cues you into why is he so scared of this place mm. and what is what does it hold and so on. Um, eventually, your man goes upstairs and sees the locks on the doors, and so this is all quite gradual. And something is being hidden behind there. He's heard uh, he's heard a voice as well, and that came from upstairs. And what's that? That those are two separate things. For one thing, is part of what I'm talking about. It's kind of, so the voice it comes from the other door, which is the patriarch the patriarch's voice, and the locks upstairs are what's holding Saul in. Um, we've also on top of this got the Boris Karloff character who is getting drunk and could be dangerous and mm. possibly violent, possibly sexually violent. Um, he's certainly interested in the female character who is sexualized and
1: and, the, and Saul.
0: Yes, yeah, well, you pointed that out, didn't you? Yeah, um, so,
1: which is another really interesting thing about the film. That he's very tender with him and he carries him upstairs and he kisses him. Yeah. You know. Um, so that's that's kind of another thing that adds
0: on to what is becoming quite, f- quite a full film. <laughs> um, I don't know, I just felt like... I, and maybe it's also because it then starts to be dealt with quite briefly because the film is is speeding up towards its conclusion... Um, I don't know, I just felt things were being handled very quickly.
1: They are they are handled very quickly, but I think it packs it in and it works. You know, so, you know, the the chorus girl, who's not very good chorus girl, who everyone takes for a hooker because she's with this man. Mm. But actually, the man doesn't touch her, we, she says. I mean, one of the things that I forgot to mention is that it's a pre-code film. Yes. And it's quite overt about all the sexual stuff, right? Including the old lady touching... Gloria Stewart and saying, you know, this too will rot your yeah. flesh, right? Like, yeah, so I think it has like this whole thing about sex and sexuality and age. And mm. yeah. Um, so, so yes, it does. And disfigurement
0: a as well. I mean, not only the Boris Karloff character is you know, facially, he's got these cuts and scars, but the, um, the distortion of the mirrors mm. that you pointed out, Yes. you know, and that's what she, when she's kind of being driven mental by the old lady who's been, tormenting her mm. with, with these images of age and decrepitude and then she starts to see it in the mirrors and we're shown that, you know, we're shown these these, these hall of mirror faces mm. of herself, yes. which actually become quite creepy at one point where the one, the one mirror image is like, it's like she hasn't got a nose it's
1: kind of cr- closed off It's very imaginative, it's very imaginative filmed throughout. I think it's a really imaginative film and I think it's also kind of a very well structured narrative, so you know, on the one hand you have the Melvin Douglas character, who is someone who's been through the war, you know, and is now disillusioned and drinking too much. And, yeah, he's a 20s type, really. Uh, This is a pre-code film. So, you know, you have the chorus girl who's basically kind of selling herself, yeah, to be with the rich industrialist. Yeah, of course, they're telling you they're not sleeping together, but you can imagine other things. And, (laughs) yeah, she's definitely kind of, you know, a whole other issue that to me really brings up the Depression. Yeah, It's a Depression kind of story. Then you have The Rich Industrialist, kind of brilliantly played by Charles Lawton in what I think is one of his earliest roles. I think actually it was the first film he made in America. Right. Uh, though I think uh, The Sign of the Cross was released earlier. Yeah, but I think this was the one he did first. I think he went to do one... And ended up... That was delayed, and then he ended up doing this one. And he's he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, you could see... I mean, he's meant to be a Yorkshire man or something, right? And you mm-hmm. definitely... Yeah, he is sir, this or that. But uh, you could really feel like a man of the people, and you feel his anger about his treatment. and so, Yeah, he really does Well oh, yeah,
0: You definitely want to know how he got that sir in front of his head. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: by making money, you're told. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so... So I think the film is is really bringing up all of these issues in very interesting ways because it's all about dislocation or displacement or people who don't belong or people who've lost their place you know and earlier on when we're talking about what is queer about this film those are aspects that make it queer mm. yeah that is all about you know outsiders coming in things not being what they seem kind of love finding Perverse manifestations, or you know the absence of love kind of perverting people, yeah, uh, so I think you see all of that in this film yeah <laughs> uh.
0: um, I want to uh, revisit if we can um, something that we said right at the start, which I, I think I'm unclear on where well, I was talking about um, when the, the soul character not not knowing if he's the bad guy or if yes. family's the bad guy and so on. And and you were saying that relates to queerness. And I said, oh, is that kind of, is that um, because it's a question of you know, identity being fluid? And you're saying, well, no, it's more, it's more about a, a bigger question of what is good and what is evil. And, and I'm curious as to where the relationship between that kind of question and queerness.
1: Well, you know, there's that famous saying of, you know, what is it? People have their motives that motives themselves don't know or something like that um but i I think you know what is questions of morality, yeah, and what's right and what's wrong, obviously depends on how they're defined. So here the sister is very much has a very clear sense of right and wrong in church and mm. yeah, kind of the formalities of it um but you know is Saul the victim of a crime, or is Saul the perpetrator of a crime? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because he couches it in the story of Saul and David, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, Saul loved David, or I forget what the exact story is, and I'm not very good on, you know, Bible allegories. Yeah, but he's talking about a love story that led to murder, yeah? But to go back to your initial question, of course, you know, these things have to do with perspective. So I think that, you know, there are like some, well, some absolutes, Yes, like you could say murder is wrong, right? <laughs> Though then you, even those you could say, well, if you kill somebody to defend your child, is that wrong? Mm. And yeah, you could always kind of complicate it. But I think certainly in whatever relates to sexual orientation, you know, we know historically that it is very much a question of perspective. Are you doing something wrong if it's natural? Or it's just the perspective or the point of view? Or you know, a kind of a religious or social exclusion that makes it wrong, Mm. yeah? Yeah. So, um, now, I think the film does slightly bring up these things, or it brings up these things in skewed ways, you know, particularly through this kind of um, ambiguity, for me, about what happened, yeah, what was the originary story mm. Yeah, and who's guilty in this house? Mm. Yeah, you know, kind of what, what, the actions that damn this house. Yeah, kind of, you know, what's the truth and what's just a kind of a perspective that ends up being judgmental? Yeah, but that is a preselected perspective that excludes, you know, any other judgment. Mm. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. No less clear than normal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think there are many ways in which the film lends itself to queer readings, right? Mm. I mean, I think, first of all, the campness of Horace Femme. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because the film is 90 years old, right? But those mannerisms, that way of speaking, that, you know, that response to things, Mm. I mean, someone could be doing it you know, in a sitcom or a drag show or whatever yeah, today, yeah. right? It's, it feels like
0: a, a t- it's a type that yeah. predated that and has lasted beyond.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that character alone is something. Then there are things like the patriarch being played by a woman, mm. yeah, which is you know a whole other thing, really, and a really important thing to cast a woman in that role. Then there's the story of Saul himself, yeah, because there's this suggestion that there is, like, this love story between the butler, yeah, and Saul that it, that it might also be a perverse one because, you know, you don't know whether to take him at his word or not, but he says, he beats me, mm. right? Yeah, but then, kind of, he's the one who takes care of him and who nurtures him and who kisses him and who holds him and who mourns his death, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, kind of, I think, you know, those things are quite operative in the film. And then there are more abstract things, like... Again, you know, p- people going into the house, right? Because everybody who comes in from the outside is, in quotation marks, normal. But everything in the house is strange, yeah?
0: Yeah, the relationships seem uncomfortable and weird and and, and when these, quote-unquote, normal people come in, they are confused by it. Yeah. or become, you know, later confused by it, or become intimidated by it. Yeah, yeah.
1: So so I think... I think all of those things are really interesting. I'm not sure if I've worked them all through, but I think to me, what was interesting about this film is you know how it really does use camp, yeah, in the sense of taking the form of something and applying it to something else to be both critical and humorous about it and to dislodge it right and actually. You know, so one of the famous sayings, of <laughs> one of the few things I remember because my memory is so bad is, but, you know, kind of somebody in New York goes to an S&M club for the first time. Mm. Right. And they go, "Ooh, Toto, I think we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So kind of that type of attitude. And I think that's something that is evident throughout the film, even to the extent of like these outsiders going into this house and. Yeah, wondering where the hell yeah are we. We're not in a situation where things operate as are normal or as we're used to them. There's a different kind of set of codes uh, here. And I was fascinated by the idea that ostensibly the most uh, successful director of this period at Universal, who was one of the few high-flying directors who was British, Uh, From Dudley, no less. From Dudley, no less, who was also gay and who kind of set up a visual vocabulary through uh, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man and The Old Dark House for a whole series of aspects of horror Mm. that actually lend themselves very easily to gay readings, right? So in Frankenstein... You know, the person who wants love and acceptance, but who's shunned and who's chased by the community Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, uh, finally burned the invisible man. Right. Mm -hmm. The person who you can't see, but, you know, who might be very damaging. The sense of the invisible man as a queer trope Mm -hmm. is something, you know, that I mean, very famously in mid 20th century America, you know, that was kind of one of the things that was thought to be like the scourge of communism. Yeah, communism in our midst, right? Like also they were invisible and secret and yeah. so on, but they were amongst us. Of course, you know, it's the same with gay people who were often thought to be communists on their own. That hasn't changed
0: really. I mean, it's still the gay liberal <laughs> agenda.
1: <laughs> so, so, so I just find that interesting that queerness and horror coincide, yeah, in the work of this British gay director that set up a kind of a visual imaginary or vocabulary or I mean it's not that these ideas didn't exist before, but he kind of visualized them and gave them shape. Mm. Right? Uh, in ways that remain very important. James Ford was openly gay, wasn't he? Well, people say that, but to me, like I always wonder what that means. Mm. Because, you know, if it's illegal and if it could make you lose your job and get you arrested, what that probably means is just that you know, you didn't have a fake marriage or you didn't pretend to be something that you weren't, but you certainly didn't go about announcing it. You didn't, Mm. you know, go waltzing or dancing with your boyfriend at the Mocambo or something. (laughs) So, you know, uh, um, yeah, so people say he was openly gay, but, you know, how open can you be in 1920s or 30s? Well, there's also a
0: difference between openly gay and it being common knowledge yeah uh, among others <laughs> among among the movie guys
1: i mean you know i'm sure that it was um it was something that was known by his inner circle but i'd be very surprised if it was known beyond that mm. i mean you know the other famous director of the day not english but much more famous would have been george cucor you know and of course now he's criticized because you know he would have these sunday parties and you know, he'd invite all his gay friends and all the cute guys around town and, you know, the, there were a few hustlers and so on, right? You know, but you think, how else would you organize a social life at a time where your very existence was criminal, yeah. right? You know, so yeah. of course it had to be secret, it had to be, you know, compartmentalized, hidden, mm-hmm. yes, and so on. Um, yeah, ostensibly, James Whale, you know, was more open than that, but how much more open you could be mm. without being put in jail in those days, I don't know. I don't sure. think
0: much. We were talking briefly earlier about the um, visual distortions Yes. that, uh, uh, that the mirrors yes. provide. Um, there's another one as well, I noticed. You, you pointed out in your introduction the shot through uh, the flames. It's, it's yes. repeated once or twice. Um, that we see um, the people sitting around the fire and we see through the fireplace from yes. behind and the fire... But there's a couple of shots where it's been taken from that angle. You don't see the fire. But what you do see is the image of everyone being distorted by the flames,
1: by, yes. by the heat
0: roiling the air. Yes. That's interesting.
1: I mean, I think there are films that are very elegant. They're very, very visually elegant, really. You know, they're both sparse and clean, and they have, like, this very powerful graphic qualities. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so so I think I think uh, um, they're... they're they're much better films than I expected them to be. Yeah, and they're really kind of visually very, very memorable. How far does your history go back with this film? Is it, has it been important to you before? When, when did you first see it? No, not at all. I mean, so I think it's something that I've seen before, but that I didn't know much about except that it was James Whale. And, mm. you know, and I, obviously I have seen... The Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. And in fact, I've seen Waterloo Bridge and Showboat and mm. you know all his big hits, really, I have seen. But um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think I was put off by the film. You know, I forget what the title of the film was, but the one with Brendan Fraser and Ian McGott Monsters. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I saw that when it came out. And I was kind of put off by it. You know, so kind of James Whale as a personality was never uh, like a a great interest of mine, though he is becoming one.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: sure. All right. Do you want to Um, add any?
0: um, No. I mean, yeah, I I don't have anything to add to that. That's Very informative. All right. Well,
1: thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts,
0: Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye.